0: Friends, and welcome to the World Transform. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen.
1: Hey, Phil, how are
0: you? Well, I am super fantastic. How are you, my friend? Man, I'm great. Let's get our guest out this evening. This is part two of our three part show, right? That is absolutely right. We're very Delighted to welcome Steve Wells back to the show. Steve is a global futurist and a keynote speaker, and he's COO of Fast Future, which is a professional foresight firm. We're talking with Steve about his book, A Very Human Future, Enriching Humanity in a Digitized World. Steve, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Phil, and uh, hello again, Stephen.
0: (laughs) Hey, Steve. Well, all right. We're going to get into some of the later sections of the book. For those who haven't listened to part one, follow the link and check it out. We talked about sections one and two of a very human future now i want to talk a little bit about part three human centered cities and there's a couple of topics actually we could do hours and hours just talking about (laughs) these topics these are very near and dear to our hearts but the future of multimodal transport in a self-driving world give us a give us some of the headlines from that this is one of our favorite topics here is the self-driving future how's it going to be different
1: well i think this uh, actually it's one it's one of mine as well and and the start point of multimodal transport in a self-driving world, I, I think, is the autonomous car. And the reason I love the autonomous car so much is it kind of combines robotics with artificial intelligence. So, you know, the last time we were together, we spoke about the significance uh, of AI. And AI is obviously going to play such a big part in, uh, in creating self-driving vehicles. And I think it's really important that we, we understand when we think about a self-driving world, it's not just cars, it's trucks, um, it's boats, it's planes. You know, It's every way that we can imagine that we'll move around has the potential to be autonomous. And I think the, the other thing that really strikes me about this particular technology is we're starting from the really hard end of developing it and making it live and work in, in our cities. So we want autonomous cars to be totally predictable around a whole bunch of totally unpredictable beings uh, kind of us Um, so if we roll forward uh, 10-15 years and our cities have banned uh manually driven vehicles, then all of a sudden autonomous vehicles make absolutely perfect sense because they can talk to the street furniture, they can talk to the signaling, they can talk to each other. Uh, Maybe there'll be a shared protocol in the way that their AI systems are developed. Um, and, And all of a sudden you've got a much safer driving environment. I suppose the issue that we have at the moment is that kind of transitional piece. So, how do we intermingle, if you like, manually driven vehicles with self driving vehicles? You know, once we get over that, then I I think we're set for a a truly changeable world in the way that, that we move around. But I think one of the other things that people sometimes lose sight of is that this self driving world has a massive potential impact on how we think about what at the moment are some of our biggest personal assets that we own. So at the moment, you know, I have a car, my wife has a car, my daughter has a car, and all three of those cars spend about 90, 95% of their time parked outside the house. Right. So in the future, maybe we'll all decide that we don't need to own our vehicles and that maybe we'll contribute to a cooperative self-driving organization where we can call up the self-driving car to take us from A to B. Maybe there'll be a range of different types of vehicles. So if I want to work, there'll be a self-driving vehicle set up for work. Um, if I want to chill or sleep, then uh, you know, there'll be one of those as well. If I want to watch a movie, then uh, I choose a, a movie showing car. So already we've got that kind of different way of moving about and maybe a different way of ownership. But I I can see um, a situation where organizations that currently provide public transport, be they rail companies, be they bus companies, start to merge across sectors into each other's business. So certainly in the UK we already see that with some bus operators running train lines, for example. But maybe we'll start to see that in the way that we can book and use end-to-end transport. Maybe we can see that in the way that uh, different parts of transport infrastructure are used not just for trains, for example, but maybe also autonomous drones. So, you know, the trackways used for autonomous drones. So the way I think that we'll move around cities in the future will be radically different, and I think there'll be an implication on the way that we own those kind of
0: vehicle-type assets. One of the things that'll be really interesting to see is assuming we get to the self-driving future, those vehicles, if we're not individually owned, and even if they are, people might be leasing them out while they're, while they're not driving themselves in order for them to, to, to be used by others. We won't see this world where parking is such a big deal anymore, right? So cities without this hassle of of worrying about where all the cars are going to be parked because they will be parked, right? They're just going to be moving around all the time. We had a banker on a few weeks ago and we were talking about how the suburbs are going to look different if one third of the house footprint on the ground isn't dedicated to the garage anymore, right? Because people don't have to keep a car in their garage anymore. So suddenly you've got a lot more space to work with both for residential real estate and for commercial real estate. Everything becomes a lot easier when you don't have all those cars to park anymore. And that's just one little change, but it's not one that people are thinking about.
1: I think that kind of builds onto a, a bit of a hobby horse of mine, which uh, if you kind of overlay the issue of, uh, of transportation in the city centers with a potential change in work because of automation and an increasing pace of change in retail, then maybe you end up with a city where – the population and communities kind of take back the city because we don't need the big stores that we see. We don't need big flagship stores. We don't need big office buildings because we're working in very different ways. So not only do we start to see a different issue around parking um, because we don't own cars in the city, but maybe we see a repurposing of much of the real estate that we see in cities at the moment from commercial and retail back to residential.
0: Now, speaking of repurposing, real estate. One of the other topics in part three of the book is city farming. And uh, Stephen, I know this is a big one for you. You like to talk about vertical farming. But Steve, uh, one of the chapters of the book here, you talk about beyond vertical solutions. So talk a little bit about what's going to happen beyond the idea of the vertical farm.
1: Just to kind of pick up on on the vertical farm piece itself, I think it's really interesting when we're starting to see property developers um, looking at building office blocks where if you're in the northern hemisphere, the office accommodation faces north. On the south side of the building, you have a vertical farm. Hmm. Um, and basically, you use um, uh, the environment created in the office piece to create a favorable environment for the growing of produce and vice versa. So that's one issue. The other is LED farming so um, how can we grow crops under led lighting more efficiently with higher yields than we can now but i think the other thing that we probably need to dial into this is vitro meat so if we don't have to farm meat in conventional ways perhaps we can basically feed the city from inside the city using these different methods of farming be it what we might think of as artificial meat with uh, vertical farming with um, led type farming and that has quite a profound impact on some of the related industries so if you're feeding people from food you grow actually in the city then all of a sudden you don't need the logistics that you do at the moment to bring the food from the countryside into the city you actually create less emissions into the atmosphere if you take animals out of the meat production process. So as well as the vertical farming, you've got all these other factors that potentially create a really different sense of what we mean by city
0: farming. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that one of the interesting challenges that that raises, or one of the interesting, let's say, questions that that raises is what's going to happen to all the land out there that is currently being used for farming? Are we going to have big game preserves? You know, Are we going to go back and make, make parks out of all of it? Because if we move to a future where people are moving to the cities and we're getting most of our food from the cities, what happens to all the rest of that land? Any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think as part of a very human future, we would see this balance between what is it that technology can do for us, but also how can we be more in touch with nature? How can we be more in touch with um, some of the other things that actually make us human? So if we think for a second that possibly technology could take more jobs out of the economy than it puts in, then maybe we need to think of how do we, how do we keep people motivated to do other things? How do we keep people fulfilled? And one of the ways may be by providing access to more natural areas. So maybe that's one way of repurposing the land. The other thing that I can potentially see is uh, maybe there's kind of a different value associated with city farming and, uh, and and country farming maybe kind of a, an organic more natural process maybe we'll even start to see more people moving back out to the countryside um, at some point uh, as an opportunity to kind of take the value from the countryside back again so you know i think i think that's quite an interesting question and maybe one that kind of real estate landowners may need to think about in the future because for so long we've actually seen farming land outside the cities uh, being turned over for development and maybe we'll start to see that reverse so what happens to all that land i guess i'm, I'm not really sure that that's not something we we've thought about greatly if i'm completely honest
0: yeah it's something we talked about i don't know a, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about this interesting kind of urbanization and the trend over the last century has just been absolutely yeah. in that in that direction as the population grows it's also grown more and more concentrated into urban areas. And what finally happens to the farming communities? What finally happens to the small towns? And is it possible that at some point people start to move back, right? They say, well, you know what? Being close to everybody was great, but also having some room might be great too. And since we're completely connected, since we have the technology to be completely connected with anyone we need to be, will we start to see kind of a renaissance of the small town? I wonder.
1: I mean, there are, there are some quite interesting things in there. I mean, it's, uh, first of all, you could imagine that as the transition to increasing urbanisation gathers pace, then small rural communities could start to feel disconnected. We already see, I think, in most uh, in most countries, the great investment in connected technology being in the areas of greatest population. So, you know, I, I'm sure in the US, just as it is in the UK, as you drive around the country your cell phone signal disappears between towns. Right, um, right. So maybe that could be something that's actually exacerbated as increasing urbanization and the, and the increasing focus on, uh, on, on expanding conurbations happens. But then you may see that as new technologies come in and allow us to go back to those rural communities, that maybe we would see a rebirth of those Maybe, I mean, the other thing that, that begins to play into that, I think, potentially, is the, the economic impacts around that. So that may be the, the thing that's available to only rich people. Right. And maybe people with, you know, with less money have to put up with an urbanized, uh, an urbanized type um, existence. I'm not quite sure how different that is to where we are now, which, which is interesting in itself. But yeah, you, you, know, you could just see some of these different dynamics playing out.
0: Absolutely. Uh, it's interesting that the more things change, the more some of them stay the same or, or come back to, to realities that we had earlier. Now, in chapter four, part four of the book, which is all about people, jobs, and capability, there is a chapter on enhancing learning outcomes with virtual reality. Let's talk just a little bit about that. We, we think of virtual reality as being a very kind of high concept technology and very much Part of the information, or excuse me, the entertainment infrastructure that's that's coming on. We we think of it in, in gaming and those kinds of things. But yeah. what are the big commercial or big educational applications that you see for virtual reality in the near future?
1: Well, I think we're already uh, – oh, just to go back on one about virtual reality. I mean, uh, gaming, you're absolutely right. Business, that's right in there as well. At its peak, the internal economy of Second Life, which I'm sure a, a lot of listeners will have heard, of, oh, heard wow. about, was worth $500 million. That was trading in virtual products and services, Amazing. which I think is absolutely quite astounding. So you know, the context for this is what's virtual and what's real. So maybe we, know we need to kind of hold that kind of tension in our heads as we start to think about virtual reality. In terms of education well and training, I think it just creates an opportunity to have access to the kind of technology, the kind of visibility, the kind of exploration of knowledge that we've never had before. So if by merging a number of different of these immersive technologies, I can experience what it's like to stand in the middle of the savannah, really up close to a lion. So I could actually smell its breath. I could feel the wind of the savannah on me. Um, I could hear the sounds of the savannah and I can do that from the classroom then I think that really begins to bring to life some of the learning opportunities that we might have. We're already starting to see some of these technologies help in areas such as uh, um, aircraft maintenance, uh, be it in surgery. So there's a whole range of different real educational training and business type applications that we're seeing for this technology.
0: The, the, old those one, the old is? one that comes to mind, Steve, is uh, you know, flight simulators. You know, we, I would well, I yeah. would hate I would hate to take a flight with a pilot that hadn't been trained many, many hours in a flight simulator, right? So maybe other professions uh you know we 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 will get to the point where we just demand it of them. You know, you're you're not certified to do whatever until you've completed you know x number of hours in a simulator of some sort in, in virtual simulator. reality
1: yeah i I, I think you 're absolutely right. that will certainly be one thing that we 'll we'll see happen. I think the interesting thing about that kind of the, the, the flight simulator thing is i think it was a it was a study that was quoted in business insider it was a couple of years ago now, uh, and basically what they did they asked a whole bunch of professionals what they thought their the likelihood was of their occupations being automated by robots over the next 10 to 20 years. And what it basically said was the kind of things that we might expect to see, so uh, some stuff around insurance, some stuff around uh, retail sales, some stuff around kind of help desk work, that kind of thing would be automated. But in essence, if you asked airline pilots, then they thought that the chances were 50% that an airline pilot's role would be automated within the foreseeable future.
0: Right, because they've experienced it firsthand with the autopilots and all that sort of thing, right? They, they already yeah. know that's happening, sure.
1: Yeah, it, it, Yeah. exactly. So the idea of what virtual reality might do for us, I think will also start to change as other technologies start to emerge as well. And I think that's one of the fundamental differences around the fourth industrial revolution that we haven't seen in the previous three. It's just this range, this plethora, this explosion of science and technology developments that when you put them in combination, create an exponentially more powerful technology than we've
0: seen before. You know, one of the interesting uses for virtual reality might then be just to help us model Rapid change, right? We're we're living in this period of accelerating change, and maybe we can get a little bit of a head start on how different – assuming the world every five years is going to be radically different than it was before for some period of time. Virtual reality can give us a little bit of a head start, can give us a little sneak preview of of where we're about to be before before we get there.
1: Yeah, I think we'll we'll certainly see uh, virtual reality helping us consider complexity. So you know you can you, you can just see how that would allow us to look at things from different perspectives. You know, I've kind of got a vision in my mind at the moment of, of a multifaceted um, 3D object that uh, that I can kind of see and that I can turn around and you know and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm sure we're going to see virtual reality used in all sorts of ways. But I, but I go back to this: if we're able to. Can kind of use virtual reality together with some of these other technologies, and it becomes increasingly powerful. You know, it stops being something we'll see just through the 3D glasses or just on a computer screen, and it suddenly becomes really alive. It suddenly becomes something that we can use in our everyday
0: work lives. You go back to that question that you asked initially about second life: what's what's real and what's virtual? Maybe the the lines get blurrier and blurrier as we go.
1: Well, yeah, I, I mean, if, we, if we're able to make a living in a virtual world because someone else finds that service or product in the virtual world entertaining, then suddenly it becomes real.
0: Absolutely. I also
1: think that if, we, if, we, if we're potentially able to create virtual training spaces and we look at the potential for projecting holograms and that, that kind of thing, then all of a sudden the events industry starts to change radically. So, you know, we don't all... Uh, congregate in a hotel reception area uh, at 8 30 a.m. for a bit of networking we actually stay exactly where we are and our hologram represents us in a virtual
0: room so maybe we'll start to see some changes like that as well in the future interesting interesting although that sounds less fun in some ways doesn't it i mean it sounds uh, easier and maybe we can get more networking done but somehow less i don't know <laughs> less fun somehow less less
1: yeah less, i mean th- this is This this is where I think some of these technologies kind of start to challenge our humanity. So as a human, um, as a kind of a biological species, you know, what sort of interaction do I need? And do these technologies potentially take away what it is to be human in the way that I interact with other people? Now, obviously, there's evidence uh, from research that suggests millennials, for example, are much more happy having more virtual conversations than kind of older generations. But I'm not quite sure how sustainable that is. You know, what about the, 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 the things that really make us human? How do they potentially change? How do we make
0: sure that we retain that in an increasingly digitized world? Right. So it's a fine line we, we tread between virtual experiences, so. real experiences, the virtual world, the, the real world. All right. Well, Steve, this has been fantastic. We're going to conclude our discussion with you in part three in our next show. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. My pleasure. All right. That's going to do it for this edition of The World Transform. We will be back with part three, our conclusion of our discussion with Steve Wells. Look forward to being with you all then. And until next time, live to see it.